Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 14th episode of Crime Over Wine, the only podcast with head-scratching true crime stories that are just better over a bottle of wine. I'm your host, Liam Collins, and this week I am joined by a Tar Heel, a volunteer, and a phoenix all wrapped up into one. My guest co-host this week is Ashley Bully. Hello, Ashley. How are you doing? Hey, Liam. I am great. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm pretty good. So much better now that you're here. Um, <laughs> Ashley and I met when we were both journalism students at Elon University in Elon, North Carolina. Go Phoenix. She has a background in local news too. And now she is a strategic communications manager at Fletcher Marketing in Knoxville, Tennessee. Yeah, I am. It's been an interesting career switch, but I have loved every (laughs) second of it. So yeah, it's really, really great to be able to be able to do this here with you, Liam. Oh, I'm so happy that you're here. I'm so glad you decided to do it. But I also know so um, that, you know, you're I think what you did five years in local news. Am I right about that? Remember that correctly? Yeah. So um, I know that you know all about the, you know, I'm sure you've done a shooting or two. um, And also, I believe you were even on, um, you know, not that this is nothing to do with this story with this episode but you did you did some reporting on the summer wells case in yes Nashville, correct summer wells and the joel guy jr trial were two really mm. interesting cases that i've followed um so those are some good future ones for you in the future <laughs> oh i will oh i know all about those they're on my list actually you know they are yeah. so um, why do you say we get to our wine of the week? Absolutely. Let's do this. Let's do it. Okay, this is my favorite part of the episode, um, also <laughs> mostly because I love the popping sound. Um, and you know, it's so funny because I think the wine companies that have the twist off wines, I feel like are really losing out in profit because I would definitely pay like 10 extra dollars just to hear that wine pop sound. Oh, wow. Floor. Okay. See, yeah. I didn't know what you were going to choose for this episode. And I was like, like, oh, I hope it's a twist off just because <laughs> they're so much easier. <laughs> <laughs> Two different types of people in the world. <laughs> you saw my fiance open the wine before this. Episode yeah, I did. I did. I was like, I'm just not strong enough. <laughs> I'm just weak. I, I leave local news. I leave carrying my own gear and I become weak. <laughs> <laughs> you need what you need is the, one of those like automatic ones. One of the automatic like oh, the electric yeah. um, wine openers. I think I think that is really going to open your horizons in a big way. Yes. I'll add it to the wedding registry. Okay. They, oh, yeah. So a little casual no- note there. Ashley is engaged, getting married next summer. So congratulations. <laughs> Congratulations to you. Are you so excited? Absolutely. It's been a process planning oh. a wedding, having a career change, but it's been a lot of yeah. fun. Yeah. Well, and we also don't have to like mention this because like triggering, but I know that you guys like went through like, you know, a, a pretty big like <laughs> obstacle. So I, you know, I feel like yeah. if you went, I, that sounds really morbid because it feels like it sounds like I'm like saying that you guys are having like mar- like problems already, but like, <laughs> I guess I should give more context, like, you know, yeah. the, 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 the house issues that you guys just have. So yeah, with our home flooding. On Christmas Eve, (laughs) Merry Christmas to us. (laughs) Yeah. Hey, if you can get through that, then you can get through anything. So cheers cheers to a very long marriage. Cheers, yes. Cheers to you. Clink. (laughs) If only we could clink. (laughs) If only my second favorite noise, my second favorite wine-related noise. Oh, yes. Love that. Love that. (laughs) (laughs) This week, we're drinking Bogle Vineyards Chardonnay from California. It has hints of green apple and pear with honeycomb and vanilla undertones, which honeycomb, I never, like, that didn't register for me when I wrote that. No. Honeycomb is really an interesting flavor to add in a wine, but I, now that I'm thinking about it, I definitely got some honeycomb in there. Yeah. It's so smooth and buttery Mm -hmm. that... I don't even feel like I've gotten the green apple and the pear. I definitely can see with the green apple. I mean, I guess like when you're talking about green apple in terms of like the sourness of it, which feels like a weird way to describe wine, but yes, it is. I definitely hmm, like, it's almost like a, like the, like not like a green, like a um, green apple from like an actual apple, but like a green apple from like a candy. Yes. I taste that too more. Now that you said that there's a sour hint, I taste that too. Yeah. I overall, I think I'm giving this. I think I'm giving this like four out of five glasses. I'm okay. really enjoying this. Hmm. I think I need more time to decide. <laughs> okay, we can re- we can revisit. We can definitely revisit at the end. <laughs> well, so on that note, let's transition into our story of the week. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I'm ready to hear it. Okay, let's do it. So have you ever heard of Teresita Bassa before I asked you to do this episode? 
No, not at all. Okay, so this is going to be a wild ride for you then, Ashley. This week, I want to tell you a story that crosses the line from the abnormal to the paranormal. It's a crime that went cold until an unconventional tip pushed investigators in the right direction to make an arrest. Today, I'm going to tell you the story of Teresita Bassa, the ghost witness. Teresita Bassa was born in the Philippines in 1929. She was really interested in music and graduated from the University of Assumption in Manila in early 1960. She moved to the U.S. shortly after that for a better life and to continue studying. She enrolled at Loyola University in Chicago to study medicine, though. By the 1970s, she started working at Edgewater Hospital as a respiratory therapist. Friends and family described her as quiet and unassuming but also someone who really excelled at what she did. She really enjoyed her job and received praise from her patients. So really that kind of person who, if she's going to do it, she's going to do it right. On the side, though, she was still practicing her passion for music. She would give piano lessons for kids in the neighborhood. On February 21st, 1977, Teresita worked a shift at the hospital as normal and returned to her apartment on North Pine Grove Avenue in Chicago around 5.30, where she lived on her own. Around 7.30, she got on the phone with a friend named Ruth Loeb. Ruth says that Teresita told her that she had a male friend coming over, but didn't say who it was. And Ashley, I'm not sure sure how much I should be reading into this point, because in hindsight, it does seem like a little bit odd. But at the same time, I could see a friend telling me that, you know, a friend's coming over and, you know, me just not really asking a whole lot of questions about that. Yeah, I think it depends on how well you know the person. Mm -hmm. You know, like, if this is someone that you don't know super well, then maybe you just say, like, yeah, I have somebody coming over in just a little bit, or she has Mm -hmm. a guest coming or something. But I don't I don't know if that would be something that would alarm me, but I would Mm. feel guilty if something were to happen to that person and I didn't ask questions in advance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I could also see, like, maybe, like, I don't know, like, if when investigators go ask her about this afterwards, like, maybe just being like, yeah, you know, like, we talked about our days, we talked about, like, you know, what what we're going to watch on TV that night, like, she said she had a friend coming over and, like, also she said she was going to, you know what I mean? Like, just kind of, like, naming things going down and, like, maybe it didn't really stick out at all, but it was just one of the things that she remembered that she said. Yeah, that that's true. Yeah. So Ruth and Teresita hang up after a 30-minute girl powwow, and they both go about the rest of their respective nights. But around 10 that night, Teresita's neighbors call 911 when they smell smoke coming out of Teresita's apartment. Firefighters get to Teresita's 15th floor apartment and bust down the door. They quickly find the source of the fire that's filling the room and the hallway with smoke. It's the mattress in the bedroom, and it's actively on fire. They quickly put it out, though, but as they look around, they realize that something's just a little off in the apartment. It's pretty disheveled, and there are clear signs of a struggle, but nobody's home. That's when they decide to lift the charred mattress to get a look at what's underneath it. And that's when they realize that they're not at the site of a fire, but they're at the site of a crime scene. When firefighters lift the mattress, they find a woman's naked body underneath it with clothes just tossed on top of her. When they move the clothes, they found a butcher's knife buried deep into her chest. Oh my goodness. That's just, that's a lot. Yeah. It's that it's quite a scene if you're a firefighter just thinking that you're just yeah. across, you know, just your average everyday kind of yes. fire deal. And then all of a sudden, oh. Yeah. And I feel like that's really gruesome. Mm-hmm. too like what's the motive <laughs> yeah so yeah well we're just about to get to that actually <laughs> hold on now that would be a really short episode if i told you about that um but so firefighters call in investigators who are able to determine that the woman underneath the mattress was indeed 48 year old teresita bassa investigators said it was pretty obvious the fire was set intentionally to cover up the murder they also said it appeared as though teresita was sexually assaulted since she was naked underneath the mattress, but to be clear, later police said that they found no physical evidence of rape. 
They look around the apartment for clues. Nothing officers find point directly to a potential motive, and they aren't able to determine if anything was stolen from the apartment, despite the mess. They also weren't able to find much physical evidence that wasn't destroyed in the fire, meaning they weren't able to find anything that pointed to a suspect who may have set that fire. But they were able to find a note that investigators believe Teresita wrote herself. The note said, get theater tickets for A.S. That's so bizarre. There's just a lot of open ends here right now that I think investigators would feel kind of all over the place. A mattress Mm -hmm. on top of a woman with a knife in her chest, theater tickets. Right. It seems really disjointed at this point in the investigation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah, I because usually they find something. And so I think that you like kind of like you said, like a lot of open ended things situations where it's like oh like mattress like that's weird like oh clothes that's weird like no that's weird but like nothing that like pointed anything into any particular direction i suppose so i mean i can imagine you know investigators just being like what the heck happened here yeah so right away police assume that this mysterious as is somehow involved in teresita's murder but of course they aren't able to immediately point to any specific person i mean that's not much to go off of like at all so they start interviewing friends and family neighbors and coworkers, trying to get an idea of teresita's lifestyle and to see if maybe they had an idea of who this AS may be. But they all say the same thing. Nope, no one comes to mind. Teresita had no known enemies, and police dig up no significant leads on this. Police even reach out to the public for help. They ask anyone with information on Teresita or her death to come forward, but they come up with nothing, or at least nothing significant. And Ashley, I feel like that's a little strange, only because, like, you can probably relate to this, because every time I've ever done a story on anything that's like, oh, like, police are asking for any kind of information like you can call this number like I feel like I always get something like I even get an email or a phone call from somebody saying like yep this like this is you know um, what I know about the situation even if it's like totally bogus especially like in Chicago it feels weird that like nobody called did she have do we know if she had a lot of friends or family in the area or anything like that so no so her family still lives in the Philippines that's a really good point to bring up so thanks for doing that Um, but and she really um, like is like like I said at the top like she was really quiet on assuming she didn't really make like a whole lot of friends she had some she had ruth she had um you know people like friends from work she had neighbors who she seemed to know pretty well enough enough to you know teach their kids piano yeah and i almost feel like so oftentimes that when we hear about these types of cases it's often someone close to them so Mm -hmm. if she's so quiet and just kind of unassuming it had to be somebody that she knows like my Mm -hmm. first thought is always kind of a significant other or like a, a family member, something like that, mm-hmm. because you just see that all the time with various cases. Yeah. Well, and it's so interesting you brought that up because I, I didn't put this in episode because I saw this, like, I saw fleeting references to this, but nothing really. Like, I saw a couple references to some boyfriend that she may have had, that she may have been fighting with, that police may have looked into, but I never, I never saw that, like, in any, like, reliable source. So I didn't bring that up. So I guess just, like, take that with a grain of salt. Okay. Good to know. Yeah. So officers spend the next five months completely baffled about Teresita's murder. They have no leads, no suspects, and nothing that even slightly resembled a motive. Until one day when an investigator gets a call that sends chills up his spine. In August of that year, the lead investigator on Teresita's case returns to his desk to find a note asking him to call an officer in Evanston, Illinois, right outside of Chicago. When the investigator calls the officer, he says he got a call from a Dr. Jose Chua, who said he had some information about the murder of a woman named Teresita Bassa. Well, the investigator calls the doctor, and when the man picks up, he seems a little embarrassed at what he's about to say to the officer. And Ashley, grab your glass, because Dr. Chua asked the investigator if he believed in occult or supernatural forces. I mean, I believe in ghosts, but I don't Me too. know. Right. I don't know if okay. I believe in supernatural forces. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I like, you know, I grew up with like th- with, you know, you don't talk about three things. You don't talk about religion, politics or ghosts because you just never know what the other person thinks about ghosts. And so I'm glad you said that um because I was really trying to figure out a way to break the to break the ice with you. <laughs> yeah, I believe in ghosts, but I think when I think of like supernatural, I think of like the 
like people who feel possessed by like the demon mm-hmm. or are suddenly uh, transfixed on certain things, but like really interesting supernatural stuff, mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. just um, like ghosts are kind of, they can be fun in my, in my head, they're fun. <laughs> uh, they have to be, they have to be. Otherwise, like what's, what are they going to do to us? I know. You know what I mean? Like I totally feel you. So Dr. Chua tells the investigator that his wife, Remy, had been having these dreams and visions about a woman named Teresita Bassa. It started at Remy's job when she says she saw Teresita's face behind a man in their locker room. But then he said it got even more frequent and even more spooky. But before I get there, my mind just started like whizzing here, Ashley. So I had to do some research on visions and dreams of ghosts for us. So what do you say we go there first? Let's go there. Let's see what this is all about. So according to a book written by Colin Wilson called Beyond the Occult, what Remy is experiencing is called the mind's survival of death. Basically, Wilson argues that your body can die, but your brain can store these memories of your death almost like evidence. Kind of like, I imagine, a traumatic experience maybe. Your mind may store specific details of an attack or something if it feels like it may be useful in the future, but it can also wipe those details from your memory if it would do more harm than good. Now, ghostly possessions are actually pretty accepted in most cultures in the Philippines, which, remember, is where Teresita is from. But Remy is Filipina, too. So it differs based on the ethnic group, but generally it's understood in Filipino culture that everyone has anywhere from two to five souls. And when you die, one soul may be gone, but there is at least one more that sticks around and kind of does your bidding after death. The most common form of these stories of ghostly apparitions is the tale of the white lady or the woman in white. Now, this is a story that is spread throughout many different cultures in many different forms, but it generally carries with it a theme of murder, betrayal, and unrequited love. In the Philippines, visits by the white lady usually include a taxi driver driving on Balate Drive when a beautiful woman asks him for a ride. The taxi driver usually strikes up some conversation, but then turns around to see the woman's face is bruised and bloody, causing him to stop and abandon his car. This is all just so crazy that I think I need an entire bottle of wine to be able to keep listening. Oh, go for it, girl. Nobody's (laughs) judging you. I haven't even finished this first class, but I think it's really interesting how different cultures have different beliefs. I am not Uh familiar with Filipino culture whatsoever. Um, So that's just really interesting that these ladies that are from there, this is something that it sounds like is very much just a part of their upbringing. And Mm. now it's coming back to truly be a part of Teresita's life beyond the grave. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is kind of crazy. And, you know, because I, cause I've heard of this before about, like, you know, certain cultures and certain religions being believing in afterlife, but I guess I've never, like, seen it in action, like, you know, for lack of better words, like, seen it be, like, played out in court. Yeah. You know, like, that just seems very, like, I feel like it's always just been, like, these, like, you know, you know, mythical understandings that, like, yes, this kind of exists. Um, but, like, the fact that, like, it's happening, weird. Very weird. Absolutely. So it really only relates to Teresita, though, to show how the ghosts in Filipino culture usually have some unfinished business to attend to. And according to the Chuas, Teresita needs them to help her take care of hers. Ashley, we're about halfway through, and I'm really enjoying this glass of wine. Definitely. How's it going for you over there? Yeah, definitely. I... I definitely, I think it's grown on me. Like Mm -hmm. I said, doing dry January, I haven't had alcohol in a while. So I'm taking it slow. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) But I think going back to when we discussed that there's pear and apple Mm -hmm. flavors, I definitely can smell the pear, Mm. but I get the sour from the apple. Yeah. Wait, that's so, and it's so cool too, how like some wines, like you really need the smell to like, really get the full experience. Exactly. On that note, I think that's probably a good time to like transition into the next point. Late one night, Remy lays down for a nap when suddenly Dr. Chua starts hearing a strange voice. It's coming from Remy, but the voice is definitely not hers. The voice says, I am Teresita Bassa, 
and the man who killed me is still at large. How weird. Because now you're not just like hearing things, but like it, you're actually personifying that person coming through them. And that that sounds like something that I feel I've only seen in the scariest of horror mm-hmm. movies. Oh, my God. I can't imagine what he was thinking when he all of a sudden he was like, like, who's that? <laughs> you know, that's so yeah. crazy. Yeah. So, whew, yeah. So uh, the voice is speaking in Teresita's native language of Tagalog, and it begins to tell Dr. Chua the story of Teresita's death. Teresita's voice, still coming from Remy's mouth, tells Dr. Chua that a man named Alan Showery, A.S., oh was helping Teresita repair her television when he attacked her, killed her, and set fire to her mattress. Okay, so that explains the ticket. Mm-hmm. Maybe the theater tickets and those initials. Well, and it certainly at least seems to like align with what we kind of already know. And you'll kind of see this like throughout the story is like a lot of these pieces are like, okay, that's weird, but that can't be true. But it's like, oh, actually, it is true. Oh, okay. I need you to keep going because this is just too interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's about to get even more interesting, too. So Teresita actually knows Alan. He's an orderly at Teresita's hospital, basically responsible for janitorial services and maintenance. But Remy knows this man, too, actually. Remy actually works in the same hospital as Teresita and knew of her, too. This was really more of, like, a working relationship, though. They weren't really, like, getting drinks outside of work by any means, but they were familiar with each other because they, like, all work together. When Remy comes to, she says she has no memory of these visits from Teresita, and Jose decides that this is, like, too strange, and it's probably just better to brush it off and not go to the police about it. But a few days later, it happens again. Remy is laying down on their bed when Teresita's voice comes back through Remy. Teresita asks Jose why he never went to police, to which he replies he just needs more evidence that what she's saying is true before he bursts into a police station looking like a crazy person saying that a dead woman is possessing his wife. So Teresita says that Alan ended up taking some of Teresita's jewelry and gave it to his girlfriend. She also says that there are names and numbers of friends and family who could identify the jewelry. So he calls them and asks what kind of jewelry Teresita owned, and some of the jewelry did end up matching what Teresita told Jose about. So this seemed to be enough to convince Jose to go to the police department. This is all really interesting because it happened twice. Mm -hmm. And the second time seems as if he had like a full-fledged conversation Mm -hmm. with Teresita Remy. Um, And it has you really questioning afterlife and powers above Mm -hmm. throughout this entire story. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I do like, let's just like pause and take a second to to think about like, like how, like it. And again, like this is like, I've like everything I've read on this is like secondary and and, like, you know, tertiary sources on this. Um, So maybe like take like a grain of salt also. But, um, you know, I think I'm trying to think about like how how to even say this, like the fact like he just seems like this is like so normal you know like this is just like he doesn't really question it i guess like just at least again just based on how the story has been told over and over and over again it's just like yes like this voice came through and they just started like talking and then like at some point he was like okay let's just like go to the police about it absolutely and did we establish is he from the philippines as well so i never saw that like confirmed but i i think so like i feel like it has to be because she was speaking um, Tagalog, so, like, it had, like, he had to have understood it, too. Okay. So, I, I think, I feel pretty confident saying, like, yes, he must be from the Philippines, too, but I never saw that confirmed. Okay. Because I think it makes a little bit more sense if, again, we go back to the Filipino culture, mm-hmm. where this mm. seems to be more prominent, that maybe it's not as jarring to him mm. because of his cultural background. Yeah. Well, but also, too, I think there may be, like, a little bit of a difference between common as an understanding, but not common as, like, a practice. Like, how often is this happening in the Philippines? You know what I mean? Yeah, that's so. true. That's true. It, it, yeah. The way that... It sounds as if, like, daily people are having mm-hmm. these types of dreams right. in the Philippines, which I'm sure, if that's the case, right. we need to book a flight over there, Yeah, <laughs> right. Like, that, right. Like, I just can't imagine, like, that can be true. But 
I don't know. May, I mean, I guess too, like, I guess if you grew up in that kind of culture where like, yes, these things can happen and like you grow up like being taught this and like, this is, you know, maybe it doesn't feel as, as abnormal. Whereas like to me, like I've never even thought about that happening. So it's like, if that happened to me, I'd be like, like, oh my God, like, you know, I would be freaking out. Like I wouldn't even know what to do. I'd probably have a heart attack. Yeah. And then to take, to have the, the thought, I feel like the police would be the last place I'd want to take mm. my thoughts to, mm-hmm. because I feel like, especially in the U S they would think you're crazy. Oh, for sure. You need help. Yeah. This oh. is not mental hospital. Right. Yeah. No mental <laughs> yeah. hospital for sure. Yeah. So detectives weren't really sure what to make of this information. They weren't sure if they could trust it. But at this point, they had nothing else to go off of. So they decide to at least check this tip out. Detectives go back to some of Teresita's friends and co-workers to ask again about what they knew about that night and to see if they knew of this Alan Shorey. One of her coworkers say, oh, yeah, actually, I do know him. And right before Teresita was killed, I actually overheard that Alan was supposed to go over to her apartment to repair her television. Exactly like what Teresita's supposed ghost said to Dr. Chua. This has to be connected at this point. Mm. In my head, it only makes sense. Yeah. Well, and that's kind of what I was saying about, like, these little things about, like, oh, that's so crazy. But then it's like, oh, like, nope, like, check mark, like, that's true. Like, it's, like, that keeps happening. And it's like, okay, like, I could see, I guess, how all of a sudden, like, all these, like, pieces, like, it went from some, ex- like, crazy tip to, oh, no, this is actually the tip, exactly the tip that we needed to put these timeline together. Exactly. Yeah. So that seemed to be enough for for police to at least go talk to this Allen guy. So they go over to his apartment and he goes willingly with police to the station to answer some questions. They ask him if he knows Teresita and he originally says no, he doesn't. But then detectives say that his co-workers said that they overheard that he was going to fix her TV that night, which he again denies. But after a while and a little bit of questioning, he eventually admits that he was going to work on Teresita's television, but he says he didn't have the right tools to fix it. Plus, he says his apartment was having its own electrical problems that night, so he had to go back home to fix it, and then he left Teresita's apartment. Yeah, but if you lie and then tell the truth, Mm. something's up. Mm -hmm. Something's up. I think... I think, especially with the the tickets for AS, Mm -hmm. like, I... The theater tickets, we can't forget about those. And just the fact that if there's anybody I'm going to be honest with, it's going to be the police. (laughs) Yeah, right. So they don't really ask about the jewelry that Teresita says that Alan had taken from her apartment. But again, the Chua's claim that Alan gave the jewelry to his girlfriend, Yanka. So when detectives bring Alan back to his apartment, they just like stop and just casually ask some questions to Yanka, who is pregnant at the time. And when they talk to her, they notice something that is definitely setting off some alarm bells. Yanka is wearing the exact jewelry that Dr. Chua said Teresita described to him. It's a pearl ring and a jade pendant that Teresita's father bought for her mother as a gift from France. Now this is just something that really paints the picture of Alan Shorey potentially being there that night. Whether he's the killer or not, mm-hmm. I would think that he would at least have some sort of idea of who did it, whether it's him or somebody else. He could either be a witness or he could be the killer. And it's, again, it's another example of this bizarre story that police are being told by these people who, you know, claim to be visited by this ghost to, okay, no, actually there are a lot of pieces of evidence that, you know, regardless of the of the ghost, like, are pointing to, you know, Alan having some sort of connection to Teresita when, again, like, when they first asked him about it, he was like, no, never heard of her. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So they point out the jewelry and ask Yanka where she got them from, and she says that Alan gave them to her as a late Christmas gift. Investigators question Yanka about Alan, and they say, hey, like, did you ever take care of those electrical problems that you guys had? To which she replies, what electrical problems? Yanka explains that their apartment never had any sort of electrical issue, and even if it did, she says Alan would have no idea how to fix it. And... 
I'm no engineer and I'm not sure what like electrical problems Alan seemed to want investigators to believe was happening in their apartment. But it seems that if you can't fix electrical problems in your home, you definitely like can't fix a television. Totally agree. This is definitely setting off alarm bells, like you said, for investigators. Yeah. Well, and also like very circumstantial evidence on its face anyways, you know, like God knows, like he, he could have bought that jewelry from a, from some guy on the street. Mm-hmm. Like he could have, you know, you know, like a lie does not make a killer, but you know, it certainly is not adding, you know, looking good to him at no. this point. So that was enough for investigators to take another look at Alan and they question him again. And he eventually confesses to killing Teresita Bassa. He says he did agree to go work on Teresita's TV that night. Alan was having some financial hardships, and so Teresita had been hiring him to do some odd jobs to earn some extra cash. He says he did go to her apartment and then left because he didn't have the right tools, but then made the decision to return and rob her apartment. When he got back to Teresita's apartment, she let him in, and as soon as she turned around to lock the door, he said he attacked her, derobed her to make it look like a sexual assault. After he killed her, he said he only found $30, so he took some more of her expensive-looking jewelry to make the murder seem more worthwhile. That's so sad that... It seems Mm. like she was trying to honestly help him Mm -hmm. and by hiring him to do just different jobs around the house. And he really took advantage of that. And he only found 30 bucks and then took the jewelry and Mm. he didn't even pawn the jewelry. He just gave it to his girlfriend. Yeah, that's what I don't really, you know, understand about that part either. Like you said, like, you think that if he was really trying to make a buck, like, so he he took $30 and, you know, jewelry that he didn't even make any money off of. So, like, why, like, why did you do it? Yeah, I, and especially since, I mean, that's a gruesome murder. I mean, mm. we just need to revisit the fact that, like, he stabbed her with a butcher's knife. I, was it even premeditated? Mm. It, I don't even know, because if he just... A butcher's knife is what you have in your yes. kitchen. So, right. I, yeah, I mean, that I'm not a prosecutor, but that seems pretty premeditated to me to like, like, you know, go to this apartment, leave, and then come back and like as soon as sure. the door is closed and locked, like that's when you make your move. I should also say too, because I didn't put this at the top of the episode for some reason, but, um, like, you know, investigators said that he lived very close to Teresita. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, they knew pretty early on, I think, that he like worked with her and, you know, their, what kind of relationship they had and that kind of thing. So, um, you know, I guess I should say that, like, like you know, when they when they go to go question him, he seemed, like, they seem to, you know, have a lot more information than, like, you know, just a TV repair. Yeah. It, it sounds like he, they have a co-worker working relationship, you know, that mm-hmm. I think a lot of us have all experienced in life. Well, and also, too, like, it seems like, you know, a very casual, like, 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 you know, hey, Alan, that yeah. kind of thing. Like, nothing, like, again, they're not hanging out at no. work, like, probably very surface level, you know, and then at some point, like, maybe he was complaining about, you know, money stuff, and he was like, and she was like, you know, hey, I need my TV yeah. repaired, like, you want to make a couple bucks? It seemed very innocent on her end, and he really took advantage yeah. of that. Yeah, he really did. And also, like, just, a, like, another note, like, I almost wonder, because, like, like inside of your home, like you have more than thirty dollars in cash. I am. Just, I guess I'm just wondering, like, where her the rest of her money is, and like, I was almost wondering, like, if that was the money that he was going to give to him, or that she was going to give to him. Sure. To, for t- for fixing the TV. It's interesting that he just took yeah. the jewelry and the cash. I mean, unless she just didn't have a lot there and just didn't. There wasn't anything else expensive for him to take. Well, Alan actually later retracts his entire confession, though, saying he was coerced into confessing by police who threatened to arrest his pregnant girlfriend if he didn't admit to doing it himself. As Alan is waiting for trial, his lawyers ask a judge to dismiss all of his charges, arguing that police had little to go off of and only based his arrest on Remy's bizarre paranormal experiences. So he confessed and then he retracts it. (laughs) Based on a coercion claim, which, I mean, again, to be clear, like, 70s, like, I've read so many different stories about, like, police, like, really putting the pressure on people to confess to something that they had nothing to do with, like, especially around that time. So, I mean, like, I don't necessarily put it past them, but... 
I don't know. I mean, it just looks really bad for you. Yeah. Like, you know, I just can't really, um, I can't really imagine that that, you know, that that argument went over very well to a judge. So Yeah, I think that there's too much evidence at this point. Right. Investigators argue, though, that, like, yes, this was the basis of their investigation, this bizarre visit from Teresita to Remy and the Chuas, but they only used it as their initial tip when they were able to gather additional evidence subsequently. At his trial, prosecutors call a range of witnesses, including officers and Teresita's neighbors and co-workers, but interestingly enough, they never call Remy to the stand, which... Like, I found really interestingly because it seems like they would have had, like, a great opportunity for, uh, meaning, um, Alan's attorney to really begin poking, poking some holes in prosecutor stories here about, um, about Remy's premonitions. But prosecutors argued that Remy had no memory of Teresita's visits to Remy. So, like, there was no point, I guess, in calling her to testify. And the judge agreed, I guess. Do we know if they called Jose? to the stand i don't think so either again i never saw that okay yeah because i feel like remy might be a little bit harder but jose was the one Uh who really witnessed that you know if she was asleep and she has no memory of teresita taking over her body more or less Mm -hmm. jose would be my right but jose definitely does for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you would think so. But again, I never saw that. Mm-hmm. I don't know, unless I'm just missing something really obvious here, because I had that exact same thought. I was like, Jose had to be there. But it's also too, like, I mean, I'm about to get here in a second, like about my little thoughts about, about you know, Remy and Jose. But I, you know, really just from a defense, because because as a prosecutor, your job obviously is to build this story, build this timeline. And a defense attorney's job is to poke holes in it. And it just seems like this would be the most obvious person to turn to, to poke holes, you know, in someone's story. So, like, why wouldn't why wouldn't she be subpoenaed? Like, I don't understand. Like, you know, it just seems like she like, you know, I don't know. It just feels like they both have to have to have something to go off of in terms of like you know i don't know this this whole thing is just so weird (laughs) actually and it's supernatural hi man yeah Um, right here's here's how like the questioning would go do you remember a woman taking over your body on the night of xyz yeah right Right. Well, but you would think, because she knew this, this out like Alan too, right? Yeah. So like you would think, like you know, at the very least, you'd want to investigate some kind of like motive to frame somebody, and like you know, uh, like I don't know. It just seems like there, there should have been something there to see like to really see at the very least for a defense attorney to put her up there just to show how ridiculous this all is you yeah know I mean? and like not to not to say that not to like you know you know say that like the the belief is ridiculous but like to real to like try to make it look ridiculous. yes exactly that in american culture this isn't something that's super mm-hmm. common and yeah. for people to believe in the supernatural is definitely thought of as different. And this was a time back when that stuff wasn't even talked about, I feel like, in society. Whereas today, it's a little mm-hmm. bit more common. But in the 70s, it wasn't. So uh, accepted, yeah. Exactly. For either of either the prosecution or the defense to not turn to them is mm-hmm. is a little bit interesting. I well and also like I could see a like a jury in Chicago, <laughs> you know, like like, you know, not buying that at yes. all. So I, you know, and like I, I would I would imagine an events attorney would have a pretty easy yeah. time doing that. I don't know, but like and also too, like just the fact that you based your entire not based it, but like, you know, the whole investigation was stemmed from this tip. You'd think that that would be a major, like, linchpin in this thing. Because I think without it, if I were a jury member, I don't know how I would feel like, what do I have to convict somebody on? Right, well, because also, like, from from a police perspective, like, without this tip, like, Alan's never arrested. No. Do we know how you know? long he went before he was arrested? It was, um, so it was five months... Um, after the murder when, um, when Jose calls investigators. Okay. So I would imagine like shortly after that. Okay. So. Yeah. That's a, 
that's quite a lengthy time of freedom. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I think it's definitely uh, that breakthrough in the case is so significant for none of the mm-hmm. lawyers to utilize it is bizarre. Yeah, absolutely. So the jury is not able to reach a verdict and the case is declared a mistrial, but prosecutors are not letting it go. They are going to try their case against Allen again, but they never have to. A month later, on February 23rd, 1979, Allen pleads guilty to Teresita's murder, as well as robbery and arson charges. It's rumored he decided to accept a plea deal after Teresita's spirit visited him in jail. He is sentenced to 14 years in prison. My first thought is, this man's back out. (laughs) it's been more than 14 years since the 70s yeah well and also so like we're about to get there too but like he doesn't even serve that long but i was shocked too when i only saw 14 years i was like to probably just the arson charges in your sentence to less time in 14 than 14 years you know like that's crazy to me so i don't really get how how he gets away with murder like that but i don't know i can also like and i see this all the time too where it's like it's a it's a high profile case Mm -hmm. that is going unsolved that is really you know probably looking a little embarrassing to investigators to the police department so i can also you know just again going back to like you know playing devil's advocate maybe like going back to like his claims that he was coerced into into confessing like i could see how maybe potentially like the officers were really just trying to get a conviction yeah you know what i mean because like just to clear the case just to close it you know i don't know i don't like to think that that that's even like like a possibility but i mean 14 years like a 14 year sentence for a plea deal like that's very low for mm-hmm. murder and so i could like i mean it's that's kind of where my mind goes to that yeah and i also want to bring up too because we haven't talked about this the fact mm-hmm. that her family could all still be in the philippines and like doesn't even know mm-hmm. you know or maybe they do know yeah. but yeah. and they they can't come over to the u.s but like i wonder where they are in all of this and if they had maybe they had like victim statements yes if if maybe they mm. had had victim statements that maybe that could have increased mm. his sentence yeah yeah well and that's usually um you know just in case for listeners who don't who don't maybe understand how the process works like the sentencing hearing is usually when all those victim statements kind of come out and that's usually dependency on how long the judge sentences somebody to prison, regardless of a plea deal. Like, that's, like, you know, if the victim statement's strong enough, the plea deal's not even gonna matter what the plea deal says. Like, the judge is gonna, is gonna overrule that. Yeah. And there's so... I don't think we've gotten into the culture behind this either. Like, had this been mm-hmm. different if this was someone who was natively American mm-hmm. or Filipino? And mm-hmm. I don't want to point fingers because it was a different time back in the day. But mm-hmm. I think that there's something to be said about culture again i think i think so much of this episode really has a cultural significance around asian american asian pacific islander that type of heritage into this as well yeah i think that's fair and i don't really think that can be discounted in any way um you know obviously there's you know um you know implicit bias exists no matter what you know so i think that i think that's a really good point so thanks so much for bringing that up so, a few predominant theories prevail about Teresita's death. The first being that this story was all true, that Remy Chua did indeed have these paranormal experiences that pointed investigators toward Teresita's murderer. Again, this is a belief in Filipino culture that this does actually happen, and there are a few details like her jewelry and Alan's visit that night that probably only Teresita would know about. If he's not the killer, then who is? It's kind of what mm-hmm. if there's all these different stories that are going to come out so tell me more because i'm just curious <laughs> yeah well so i am like a huge believer in ghosts i'm like way too much <laughs> of an anxious person not to be intimidated by them like i respect you you respect me and let's just like go about our separate ways I, you don't bother me i won't bother you and we're good but i just don't really know about this one i like the theories that pop up next about this case though those theories are that remy faked the entire thing this theory suggests that Remy had intimate knowledge of Alan murdering Teresita somehow. I mean, they all worked together, but Remy was too afraid of Alan to say something outright. So she made up these dreams and visions as ways to tip 
off police without sharing what she knew about him firsthand. It's also possible that Remy had something against him because there were some reports that Alan made complaints about Remy's work performance constantly. So Remy may have developed a bit of a grudge against him. That really changes my thinking on the whole case. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think about that theory? I think it's possible. I, there's a last theory that I like the best, but when you're talking about this theory, I mean, I do think it's possible. I think, you know, I don't think that she had these premonitions. I, I just think it's too yeah. convenient of a story. Um, and I think it's, I think it's possible that if she really did have this grudge against him, or even if she just kind of knew something about it, but like was kind of just too afraid to like really speak up about it, this would be a really good way to kind of be like, um, you know, that, you know, this came to me as opposed to, I knew this. Yeah. You know, and, you know, risk being a next victim. It's a really sneaky way for sure. Mm -hmm. I, Mm -hmm. I think that you're right. But then, I mean, she's got to live with that for the rest of her life you know that mm-hmm. she didn't say something sooner whether it be to Teresita mm-hmm. or to Alan or to the police whoever before right. the incident could have even happened after yeah. the incident happened I don't know I mean I guess well so let's go to the last one okay I have a lot to say about this one okay so the last theory is one that I feel that I like the most in my personal opinion the theory suggests that Remy may have been a co-conspirator in Teresita's death that she had something to do with it or at least had knowledge of it to the point where it was potentially incriminating so Remy decided that she was going to put it all on Alan so he could take the fall for it I really like this theory only because because it would make sense why Remy would know so much about Teresita's death if we were going to go along with the theory that the whole premonition thing is actually bogus. Maybe Remy confessed to her husband, and instead of going straight to police officers, they decided that they would make up this story of Teresita visiting them from beyond to divert some attention away from Remy and not to incriminate her and to paint it all on Alan. But if that is true, it makes me wonder how much police actually looked into the Chuas. I mean, ghostly evidence and paranormal activity aren't exactly admissible in court, so I guess I'm just wondering whether police ever looked at the Chuas as potential suspects. I would imagine they came up at some point, but again, it just seems odd that she wasn't subpoenaed to testify at Alan's trial. Like, she was the reason police even looked in Alan's direction to begin with. And what is Remy's motive for wanting her gone? It almost sounds like a three-way triangle. (laughs) Yeah. You know, if Alan's complaining about Remy's work, I still think it's highly unfortunate that this happened to Teresita. That's obvious, but it would make a lot of sense if the paranormal, we just remove that factor entirely and she was potentially a co-conspirator and she's just Mm -hmm. living her life. Gosh. Yeah, well, I guess I'm, you know, I guess when I think about this theory, I think it's, you know, like, you know, I kind of picture maybe, you know, the both of them going over there together somehow, and like, he attacked her, and, um, you know, and she knew about it, and, you know, didn't say anything for so long, and so then five minutes later, like, the guilt is just too much to bear. Yes. And so then that's when it comes up of like, okay, I have to say something, but I can't say, hey, I knew this for so long, because I could potentially be charged with... Um, um, obstruction of justice yes. you know, or something, what, you know, whatever that charge may be. Um, you know, I, I guess I could see, I could see how the guilt five months later is eating you alive. And so you just need to say something, but can't say everything, you know, so this feels like a good way to kind of like, you know, confess, but not confess. Yeah. And then it's, it's, I wonder if Jose was in on it at all then too. Yeah. Well, and that's kind of what I, you know, cause it's like, so if, if the premonition's bogus, then obviously he knows something more beyond, beyond what he's, you know, letting mm-hmm. on in terms of just being like, oh yeah, I had no idea who this girl, who this girl even was. So I guess I could see, you know, again, kind of like what I said, you know, you know, him, her just saying, you know, I have to get something off my chest, you know, this happened. And again, just to protect her, okay, let's just make up this story about these premonitions. Um, and then we'll go to police and, you know, and, you know, that'll be it. That'll be the end of it. Very sly. Yeah. I mean, again, I don't, I don't know. I mean, and maybe none of that's true. Maybe they have really, truly had nothing 
nothing to do with it. I mean, I have to believe that the criminal justice system kind of played out. Sure. Um, you know, and, you know, that Alan really was the right guy and, you know, su- that he was the suspect and he was convicted and, you know, that was it. Um, so, but I don't know. I just, I'm not 100% there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like there could definitely be more to the story that we just... Mm. We don't know, and it's sad that we probably never will know. Yeah, we definitely may never know for sure, but we do know that Alan eventually only served four years of his sentence. He was paroled in 1983, which, again, seems like not a very long time for those severe charges, in my personal opinion. To plead guilty to murder and only get four years, that's that's absurd. That's very scary. And again, Mm -hmm. I feel like... Maybe the criminal justice system has transformed since nineteen late nineteen seventies, right. early nineteen eighties. Yeah, I mean I just I just know people who not know people personally, but like I've heard of people who like serve longer for marijuana charges. You know? Sure. So but that's a different conversation, probably. <laughs> um, and so that is all that we have for you this week on Crime Over Wine. Ashley, thank you so much for coming on. It was so lovely seeing your face on this podcast. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I feel very honored to be a part of your podcast, Liam. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> I'm so happy you got to do this. So tell everyone where they can find you and your work online. Sure. So uh, Fletcher Marketing and PR, um, that's who I work with now. And you can find me on my Facebook page at Ashley Bowley. Um, and you can just contact us if you want us to help you with your public relations, media relations, social media, all that, all that communication stuff. And let's also remember too that Ashley has a lot of connections to local news because that was her deal back in the day. So if you have a cold case or something that needs just a little bit of an extra push, um, that is in Tennessee. And she also used to work in South Georgia, um, has ties to North Carolina. Send it her way. She has lots of connections. And now you know somebody. Yeah, absolutely. I'm always looking to make those connections. Excellent. Well, and also I too, I promised um, last week, I promised my friend Heather that we would um, do a review of the wine at the end and talk about how much wine we have left in our bottle. And oh, so gosh. I have um, like basically a full glass and like a little bit like less than a quarter at the bottom. And I also know that, that Anthony's helping you in the back. Yes. So <laughs> I am not counting anything against you. No, we just have a little so. bit left as well. I think Anthony's really enjoying okay. this too. He gives a thumbs up. <laughs> he says it's really okay. great. I've enjoyed it. So I didn't finish Excellent. my glass, but that's because I think I poured a heavy one to begin with. <laughs> uh, listen, I was sip, sip, sipping on this episode. I had a lot to, lot to conversate about. And I always say that the more wine I drink, the more I am going to be able to solve this case. I like that. For sure. (laughs) So, Ashley, thank you again so much for coming on. And thank you all for listening. We are going to put all of our sources on our website so you can read everything for yourself and probably come up with a few theories for yourself, too. Make sure you follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And we will see you next week for another episode of Crime Over Wine. Proud member of the Podnougan Network.